My name is Gene Colan, and welcome to my studio. Each time I got a story, it was always uppermost in my mind as to how different can I make this one, and this one, and so on. And as they came in, it was, I just threw myself into it, lived another life in a sense. I tried to get into that story myself. I tried to jump into the page and try to imagine what it would be like to see it visually as an outsider. When you have it developed a style, it's as recognizable as your hand, as your handwriting. Same thing. I wanted the, the story to be sort of uh, mystifying and sinister. Hello and welcome back to another episode of FW Presents, the proud anthology show of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Ryan Daly, and you, my friends, are tuning into yet another installment of my showcase of the legendary comic book artist Gene Colan. This time, at last, we are discussing Colan's contribution to the master of the mystic arts, Marvel's very own Doctor Strange. Therefore, I have enlisted a friend who likes the character so much he refers to himself as Doc Strange on Twitter. You know him as the co-host of Into the Weird, a Bronze Age Marvel podcast. Please welcome Billy D to the show. What's up, Billy? Hey, Ryan. Thank you for that introduction. And yes, Doc Strange is a favorite of mine, for sure. Absolute favorite. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, not not questioning your, your preference or anything. Not at all. I like the character. But explain that. Why Doctor Strange? Uh, why do you love him so much? When and how did you discover the character? Well, this is a little weird. So bear with me here. But uh, the first time I had ever seen Doctor Strange, you know, the character and quite a few characters of Marvel, per se, uh, was from the Spider-Man and his Amazing Friends TV show. You, of course, remember that one, right? <laughs> I, <laughs> I, was, I finally you know, did a rewatch of that. It was just like since the, pand- since the pandemic and quarantine, I finally watched every, every episode. Yeah, it, it was great. I mean, to me, being a little kid, I think I was like seven, maybe, when that came out. I thought it was the greatest. And before that, the only you know superheroes I had ever seen were DC heroes with super friends. And I thought that was great. But then when this came out, I was like, well, this is so cool. And I mean, Spider-Man, Firestar, and Iceman, yeah, yeah, they're cool. But there was an episode where I think it was the chameleon had lured all these superheroes to a castle somewhere. Seven little superheroes. Yeah, in the UK or somewhere. Yeah, it it was like the coolest thing ever. And I was like, whoa, Captain America. And it's not. And that is where I was like, this Doctor Strange guy looks super, super cool. But yeah, so that's where I kind of thought he was awesome. But it's crazy because I didn't start collecting comic books for probably another seven or eight years at least. And I went immediately to uh, Spider-Man and the X-Men. Mm-hmm. So it was, a, it was a few years down the road till I thought, well, yeah, what about that Doctor Strange guy? And I had bought some issues, single issues I was able to get uh, at a store for, you know, on, on the cheap of this series, you know, that we're going to dive into the 1988 uh, Sorcerer Supreme series. And it wasn't the best. Uh, <laughs> and I thought, okay, so don't tell me this is it. And then, of course, I found out there were these trades Marvel was making called Essentials a couple years later that were these big, thick trades, and they were in black and white, but uh, they contained 25, 30 issues, and I thought, well, I'm going to start at the beginning. So I bought Volume 1, then 2, then 3, and then that was where I just went 
totally ape over Doctor Strange. Loved it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, uh, as I mentioned before we started recording, I discovered. Well, I may have. I may have discovered him first through a trading card, which was the case for a mm. lot of Marvel characters. Uh, I got into the the Impel or Tops 1992 Marvel Universe card series, right. um, and that's where I that's where I discovered characters who would go on to become some of my favorites, like Ant Man and Black Panther and others, just because mm. I saw their cards, so I thought they were cool. Uh, and I, I know I had a Doctor Strange one, so that might have been the first time I met him. But I know that the first time reading him was the issue that we are going to be talking about, and I'll set that up in a bit. But um, So, yeah, for listeners, Gene Colan had not one but two beloved runs on Doctor Strange in his career. Mm-hmm. The first one in the late 1960s, written by Roy Thomas, uh, that was right after Strange Tales was retitled Doctor Strange, and then in the mid-1970s, Colin came back and drew The Doctor in Doctor Strange, Volume 2, when it was written by Steve Englehart. Um, Billy's co-host, Herman, sang the praises of that run on the previous episode of this show. Mm-hmm. So there's just so much. There is an abundance of great Doctor Strange comics drawn by Gene Colin. I, however, did not go with a book from one of those great runs. Um <laughs> For this episode, I picked up issue 19 of Doctor Strange Sorcerer Supreme, which came out in 1990. Um, the, I believe this is Colin's only issue on this run. It's kind of a fill-in for Butch Geis, uh, who was the main artist on the series at the time. This was my first Doctor Strange story I ever read, so nostalgia and sentimentality were really the deciding factor in why I picked this one. Um, I got this issue in the early mid-90s, I think when my store was Fantasy Comics. Because, uh, yeah, I wouldn't have picked this off the shelf. It, they had, like, grab bag sales where you could get they, – they put them in, like, brown paper bags, uh, tape mm. them so you didn't know what was in them. Uh, cool. But you could get, like – 10 comics for five bucks or something, which basically like a 50 cent thing. And you didn't wow. know you were getting, or you could get 20 comics for a uh, possibly also for $5. So it was more like quarter bin comics. Um, and you know, I, I got these just to kind of explore, hoping that I would find a gem. Now, most of them were back issues, quarter bin issues at the time that I probably would have a lot more appreciation for those. Now at the time I was, Oh man, this didn't have the latest issue of X-Men. Well, why would it be in one of these bags? Of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, but this might've been in one of those. Um, and I, I will, I will get into more what I liked about this when we talk about the issue, but then after this, I uh, within a couple of years, I read a few issues that took place before this. There was this vampire storyline going on um, that introduced uh, Doctor Strange's brother, Victor Strange, who is a vampire, which I really hope that subplot comes into the <laughs> movies, especially knowing that they have cast Blade and they're going to be bringing Blade into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I hope they do something with uh, Stephen Strange's vampire brother. Yeah, if Marvel, the MCU doesn't take advantage of the Marvel monster characters and easily incorporate Doctor Strange into that, they're really missing out. That could be huge. I, I'm sure the only factor is a um, a refusal to go R-rated with them, although if they ended up doing a Deadpool project, who knows if they would break that rule. Um, but I'm sure they, they want to they wanna maximize how many people will see it, so they want it to be age-appropriate, um, but I'm sure, they are, I'm sure there are lots of people thinking about ways that they can introduce their monsters. So, well, yeah, I hope that happens. That's a dream right there. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, for the artist for this one, the, the one that we're talking about, Gene Colon, how and when did you come to him? Uh, what has been your experience with his art up to this point? So for me, my inroads to Gene Colon was Tomb of Dracula. Um, you know, you and Herman have talked about that, you know, and it's just, it's just awe-inspiring work. I think it's his magnum opus. I think he's never done anything better. Gene on that was just incredible, him and Tom Palmer. And that was my inroads to Gene, and definitely I've always sought out anything of his I can, you know, uh, throughout the years. And then even your show here, you know, this Spotlight series on Gene Colon has opened me up to some things like the there was a wonder woman story i think he did mm-hmm. and then that zatanna one i'm really coveting that but man if you go on ebay good luck a zatanna like old school stuff is through the roof price wise so i'm just like oh man i don't know if i'm ever gonna see those <laughs> luckily i scraped together almost all of them a couple of years ago for the podcast before they were that expensive but... <sighs> yeah they are crazy expensive i can't believe it mm. yeah all right, let's get into this one then. Uh, like we said, talking about Doctor Strange, Source Supreme number 19 has a July 1990 cover date, but according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the on-sale date was May 29th that year. Colin drew the cover, which shows Strange floating kind of languidly through a space of ectoplasmic-looking smoke. Uh, there's a bat in the background, along with some ghostly faces. Uh, There are two text blisters that say he has faced Dormammu, Nightmare, and Satanish himself, but not even the Mystic Master can escape the Asriel touch. What do you think of this cover? Um, It's not a favorite of mine. I I don't think it's anywhere near one of Gene's best. You know, it's very, this position Doctor Strange in is very bizarre. The way his legs are positioned, uh, you can't even see his left arm. (laughs) It's, it's, It's really bizarre. Like, it's, I like the demon ghost faces all that super cool but man yeah the the positioning and dr strange's limbs are are very very bizarre here (laughs) i agree i don't love this cover but i do find it somewhat iconic because it's kind of for me and again this was the first one i read this for me is like a go-to visual reference for me when i think of dr strange like just because of the way it implanted um, when I think of Doctor Strange, you know, so many images jump in my head right off, and this is one of them because he's front and center on the cover. Everything behind him looks spooky and ethereal, and sort of that that kind of phantasmagoric, just smoke thing that Gene Colan mm-hmm. does a lot and does really well, yeah. especially around this time period. Um, but you're right, like the sort of contorted, like image. You know, he's not just hovering there; he's like he kind of looks. Is he asleep? Is he in pain? It's just it's a weird sort of look. However, like somebody else must have liked this one because in 2017, Marvel released two Sorcerer Supreme Omnibus collections that covered a big chunk of this series. And this was the cover to the first one. The first Omnibus took this cover. Now, it was recolored, and I think the recoloring does it some favors, kind of gives it a more of a a darker, spookier look on the blues in the background and and kind of gives it a a different vibe, kind of picks it up a little bit. I really like that that enhanced cover. Um, But it's... Yeah, I I mean, again, it's, it's a nostalgia thing where I say I like the cover, but I also look at it and think i'm not sure it's very well drawn it's it's hard to hard to say yeah it's tough i mean when i try to think of what i think of as gene's best or gene's worst you know it's nowhere near his best and it's not his worst either but it's definitely like bottom third for me for sure and i mean hey this was 1990 he was uh 
not a young man anymore, and he was pencils and inks on this cover as well. So right, you, know, right. you figure a lot of people, when they think of iconic Gene Colan images, a lot of those are, you know, Tom Palmer inked. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's a heavy inker, and, you know, some people love him, some people don't love him, but mm-hmm. he was a great uh, yeah. compliment to Gene's pencils. So a lot of times, I mean, in the Golden Age and Silver Age early, a lot of Gene, where it's just Gene pencils and inks, it, it looks a lot tighter than this. But again, he was a much younger man then. Right, right. His his style definitely kind of evolved, but but you're right. Yeah. I mean, at 1990, we're still talking. This is this is two decades removed from kind of him when he was really at his like his peak of his layout. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. like yeah, he was doing a long run on Daredevil and then just about to start that that amazing run on Tomb of Dracula. Um, yeah. So I mean, but this also wasn't really the end of his career. He would continue to do stuff. He came back to do a late uh, late nineties run on Daredevil again. So he was he was still working. But anyway, anyway, let's get into the story. So the Azrael Touch is written by Roy Thomas with art by Gene Colan, naturally. Letters by Michael Heisler and colors by George Russos. Doctor Stephen Strange is in his Sanctum Sanctorum, thinking about his brother Victor's current vampiric condition, while the Orb of Agamotto warns him of some impending doom. Since the Orb's warning is rather vague, Stephen gets a telephone call. The answering machine picks up before he does, but he hears a woman's frantic voice say she needs his help or everyone in the world may die, and then hangs up. Given the Orb of Agamotto's warning and the timing of the call, Strange decides it's probably not a crank and uses his mystic power to find the woman who called. She's in Las Vegas, and walking away from the phone booth, she bumps into a pair of intoxicated gamblers. The man tries to give her a $100 bill by way of apology, but she recoils, telling him not to touch her. This angers the man, who also notices that the woman is wearing gloves. Offended by what he assumes is her disdain for his class, he grabs the woman, taking one of her gloves off and shoves the bill in her hand before walking off with his giggling girlfriend. But then they start to scream, as the man sort of spontaneously combusts with mystic fire. His skeletal remains, burnt to a crisp, lie there on the Vegas Strip as the girlfriend runs off screaming. The police roll up, and witnesses blame the woman who called Doctor Strange, saying she killed the man somehow. The woman starts to run, and the cops chase her. One of them draws a gun and opens fire on her, because cops gotta be cops, but the bullet is deflected by a mystical barrier. And then a demonic Oni face appears to frighten the cops. With a flash of light, the girl is gone. She appears on the rooftop of a nearby building, and Dr. Strange floats down, having rescued her from the police, and asks what's going on. Her name is Rena Butler, and she wants Dr. Strange to kill her because anyone who touches her dies. It has something to do with a mysterious gem embedded in her skin by her collar. She doesn't want to tell Stephen how it came to be, so he pulls the information from her mind. Rena Butler was the supervisor of Project Azrael. The whole deal was they drilled beneath Mount Fairchild in the Nevada desert to confirm that the mountain was mostly hollow, and there whatever company sponsored the project could bury tons and tons of radioactive toxic waste. When the drill reached the core, Rena chipped off a small core sample as a trophy. One of the workers, a shirtless heartthrob named Jim, told her that locals are protesting the dig. Rena carries the core sample back to her trailer. She brings Jim along, and once inside, they have sex. Doctor Strange tries not to watch this part too closely, although we all know that he's a watcher. 
He's more concerned with the crystal core sample she put on the dresser, which seems to glow with arcane energy. After that, Rena started wearing the crystal on a necklace, but her behavior changed. She became angrier and shorter with the crew, firing members for minor infractions and small accidents, and even lashing out at Jim. One night, he came to her trailer again, and when they kissed, he burned up alive. She had killed the man she loved, so she got in her jeep and drove to Vegas to call for help. Strange and Rena arrive back at the drill site. The gem has now embedded into her, such that removing it would kill her. Whatever evil entity the gem is eroded by has corrupted Rena, giving her the Azrael touch. Strange knows that she's keeping another secret from him, but not sure what or why. They arrive too late as the drill team punched through to the core. A crystalline mist pours out, instantly knocking the drill team members and the protesters unconscious. Dr. Strange casts a spell, banishing the mystic mists, and then flies into the tunnel to find the beast at the center of the mountain, leaving Rena outside. Inside the mountain, Strange comes face to, not quite face, with what he calls Azrael, an entity composed of what looks like pink gems and mystical fiery tendrils. Azrael calls Stephen Organism, and explains that it's been there for a long time. It predates man. It's also eager to get out of the mountain and stretch its legs, killing and devouring all life on the planet in the process. Strange doesn't want that, but he can't defeat Azrael because part of the entity is embedded in Arena. As fate would have it, at that moment, Rena comes into the part of the cave. She knows Azrael will destroy all life unless it's stopped here, so she can never leave the cave. She sacrifices herself by leaping into the primordial fire of Azrael. By killing herself, the sample is returned to Azrael, making it possible to bind him there again. Strange rushes out of the cave and casts a powerful magic spell over the whole mountain, making sure it will not be disturbed again and that no company will be able to drill there and release the monster ever again. Once the spell is cast, the workers wake up. Stephen changes his outfit to civilian clothes and says that he is the new company doctor and lets them know that Rena and Jim are dead. The other workers reveal the one secret that she was able to keep from Strange— Rena had a baby daughter in her trailer. To save the child, Rena was willing to abandon it, to drive to Vegas to get help, and was willing to kill herself in the cave to stop Azrael from destroying all. Doctor Strange takes the baby in his arms, hoping that someday he'll be able to tell the girl how her mother died to save the world. The end. So, Billy, what did you think? Well, I'll tell you what, I like this story quite a bit. Um, the more I think about it, I feel it's very Bronze Agey, and mm-hmm. I'm sure that has a lot to do with Roy Thomas writing <laughs> it because you know he's a, a man of his time. But um, I really do like this story. You know, it was a, I thought it was very well written. I thought there are some good plot points to it. There's a ton of uh, continuity, which I love. I'm a I'm a continuity cop. I'll admit it um, from the previous issues. Um, so that's something I love too. And then uh, I loved how the main character. You know, the, I felt like you know. Roy gave her a lot of agency in this uh, story. You know, I thought she was a pretty strong character. And, 
that's yeah. uh, that's not something that you know you see enough of even now. And this was 1990, so that's that's pretty good. Yeah, I, I enjoy the story too for a couple of reasons, and in part again the nostalgia, the sentimentality. But this kind of set the template for what I thought Doctor Strange stories would be, and some of them in the in the Silver and Bronze Age were. I kind of liked that this shows Doctor Strange. He's not exactly doing a house call, but he's getting out of his sanctum, and he's not in the dark dimension or some other kind of realm. He's going out and being a doctor. He's helping and curing and healing somebody who is in some kind of danger or pain. It's just in this case, it's it's of a, a supernatural variety. And this kind of gave me yeah. the idea of this is what Doctor Strange's normal things are, to an extent where you mentioned, I mean, kind of the, the, the lead here, um, Arena. Mm-hmm. I felt sort of – it almost felt a little bit like uh, some – to go across the, the river to, to D.C. of a Phantom Stranger story where mm. Strange is kind of an agent to kind of help some character kind of like play out their own story and their own fate in this case. And he's he's kind of our guide into this. Um, now, Stephen Strange is much more active than that. He's not just an observer and not just a narrator. Um, he's definitely getting involved in the action. But this kind of felt like a story where, yeah, every, maybe every issue of this would be, you know, somebody else is in danger, somebody else is being haunted by ghosts or spirits or something like that, and Strange gets called in and he has to help them, which was basically the premise of his very first appearance by Lee and Ditko. Um, and, and the first, before they start getting into his origin, that, that's kind of what it was. So I've always liked that element of it, that this is just him getting out of his old stuffy house and, and doing stuff and, and meeting new people who are in t- trouble. Yeah, I mean, this story really does remind you of the first, uh, you know, the one you mentioned uh, before, first uh, bit of collaboration between Roy Thomas and Gene Colan back in that late Silver Age. Mm-hmm. You know, this was the kind of story you would have seen back then, too. Like, yeah, he did some other things like other dimensions and stuff, but he also did things where it was on Earth and just demons or this or that helping somebody out. So, uh, yeah, very much a callback to that. And I liked it. I mean, like you said, it's kind of sucks that it's the only gene colon from this uh run here since you know roy thomas did write a good bit of stories from this era but yeah i mean it was it was good stuff i mean you got the doc being his usual arrogant self so that's <laughs> that's another good thing too like you know the woman oh i'm in trouble tell me about it and he's like you know thinking okay she's gonna tell me about it but then if she doesn't well i'll just use my magic tricks to like pull whatever i want right out of her head <laughs> like yeah he's he's quite arrogant but i mean the first page too Here's another thing, too, Bronze Age writers used to do a lot. First page, what does it start out with? An Emily Dickinson quote. Yeah, so, you know, yeah exactly. They're very Bronze Age. There. A lot of Bronze Age writers did that stuff. You know, they'd pull quotes from poets and mm-hmm. writers from, you know, many decades or even centuries before to, to set a mood, you know. So that was pretty cool, too. Yeah, it's a lot to like here. I, I love that first page, too, that you mentioned. And, and yeah, the quote is, because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a close-up of, of Strange focusing in on that orb as it's just kind of glowing over its pedestal, kind of a light and like green flames with a, the, you know, very colon-esque, all-penciled like skull image inside of the orb. And, and he's just staring very intently with the, the shadow, so you can only see one eye and his, and his hand up to his chin. Yeah, I, I really like this as a mood-setting first page. Yeah, it's really good. And then the second page, too, and I have to give credit to a website for this because I didn't even realize when the doc goes running to the phone and answering machine to answer it, there's a little gargoyle, like a toy, glued to the top of his telephone. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I didn't notice that either. 
Yeah, I, I race right by it, and then I'm looking on a website here about, you know, the information, and all of a sudden it says, indexer notes, Doctor Strange has a toy gargoyle on his answering <laughs> machine phone. And I'm like, what? And I went back, and I'm like, holy crap, he does. <laughs> that is really cool. I didn't even notice that. Yeah, um, awesome. On page two, the first panel, I love that there there's no, like, straight edge in the Sanctum Sanctorum. Every wall, every like edge or corner is curved or wavy. Like the hallway, as you look down, it looks very wavy and very malformed and and dreamlike. This is a weird place. This is a place where the laws of of natural physics and and order don't really correspond. They don't work. Um, other other forces are at play here, and we're just going to represent that by showing that Gene Cullen did not use a straight edge when he was drawing this this hallway. Yeah, I mean, it's it's weird. When you look at Doctor Strange over the years, there are certain artists that would draw his, you know, home like any other home, just with these artifacts placed about it. But then every once in a while, you'd get someone else that would draw like this, you know, not too often. So this is actually a little more unique doing it this way. And, you know, all the credit in the world to Gene for that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Once we're introduced to Rena and her problem and, and the guy sort of just bursting into flames, um, and then especially when the cops are coming after her and like just that the sort of Japanese Oni demon face, which I, I'm assuming that's that's kind of what it looks like to me, um, yeah. that's sort of haunting him, this feels, and in part the plot kind of very feels very much to me like this could have been used in uh, an issue of Night Force. Uh, the series that Colin did with Marv Wolfman. Oh um, yeah, and, and this would uh, this is oh this is almost ten years later. But, well, this is eight seven eight years later. I think Night Force was eighty two and eighty three, so seven yeah. years later. Um, but I, I think there's there's some similarities in how he's drawing and he, how he's approaching like the fire and the, like the body's just turning to a charred skeleton as the energy releases and yeah, it just it seems like this is certainly kind of like the mood the way that Colin was approaching this kind of ethereal, phantasmic energy. Yeah, I just actually completed getting that uh, story, Night Force. Thank you to Mike from Comics in the Golden Age for that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I can't wait to dive into that because I just thumbed through it quickly mm-hmm. to look at Gene's work, but I'm really weird sometimes. I don't want to read something if I don't have the entire thing, like this you know, era mm-hmm. of Doctor Strange, this volume. I know it's like, what, 80-some issues, I think, or 90 issues? Yeah. Well. But I, I haven't really dived into it wholesale because I only have probably two-thirds of it. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, Night Force is one that I'm going to be diving into very, very soon. <laughs> if you need a companion podcast for that... Uh, I, I did cover every issue with uh, with Paul Hicks Paul? and Dr. Ange and Martin Gray jo- joined us for a couple episodes um, on Midnight the Podcasting Hour. But. Yep, I enjoyed it thoroughly because I'm one of these weirdos that I won't read the story, but I'll listen <laughs> to podcasts all day long about it. I know that makes absolutely no sense because you're going to know certain things, but I also have the brain of and geriatric. So by the time I get around to reading it, I won't remember anything I listened to about it anyway. So it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> uh so yeah strange picks her up i like that he kind of like he like just lifts her up in his arms and you see like the little glowing energy around her like he's using a magical assist to lift her up or whatever <laughs> I, I don't know why but i just thought and i just i thought of um the 1989 batman movie when uh they're being chased and and batman asks vicky how much do you weigh and he gives her like the little repelling <laughs> that shoots her up yeah. and everything and when she comes back down he's like you weigh a little bit more than 108 and she's like oh really so <laughs> i just <laughs> <laughs> she gets all mad at him yeah. yeah yeah that's like dr strange like i said i love how he just 
and it's not like this is something I aspire to be. Believe me, uh, I don't think it's nice to be arrogant or uh, just, mm-hmm. you know, put hands on people. But, you know, as a comic book character, that's who he is. And I like when people stay that kind of uh, mentality with him and that personality with him, that he's arrogant and he's going to do what he thinks is right, even if it means picking someone's brain. He's like Professor Xavier with a cape. You know? <laughs> just rip something out of somebody's brain, whether they like it or not, you know? <laughs> He's like, and I mean, he's like, I mean, he's kind of, he's kind of like playing, playing like the doctor card. It's like I have reason to believe you or somebody is in danger. Like, like the laws of, like the rules of confidentiality don't matter here. If you're a danger to yourself, I have to, I have to take action here. Um, mm-hmm. I love as he's flying her. He's got the eye of Agamotto kind of flying forward ahead of him, yeah. sort of like leading him away. <laughs> that is one thing. Like. I mean, obviously, the movies are a different world. They're a different interpretation, and they kind of go on their own thing. Um, But I do kind of – I'm a little bit saddened that they changed the Eye of Agamotto necklace to be the time stone because I like that what the Eye of Agamotto is supposed to do is reveal truth and reveal you know, Mm -hmm. secrets and everything like that. And it can expose people if they're using magic to disguise themselves. So – I hope they they find a way of bringing that magic trick back into his repertoire, even if they have to call it something else or whatever they do in, in future movies. But yeah, Herman and I have talked about that a couple of times on Into the Weird when we talked about Doctor Strange. How it's a little disappointing, and I believe me, you're not going to find anybody that's more you know rigid about why why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do that? Now I'm sort of uh, easing up about that over the last few years and just think, you know what? Just try to take it as a whole different universe basically. But yeah, there are some things I just think, oh, why did they have to do it that way? They could have just tweaked it a little bit and have been a little closer to the comics and it would have made me a little more happy, but you know, eh, you got to take what they give you. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't I mean, I didn't even think there'd ever be a Doctor Strange right. in this MCU. So, hey, I'm overjoyed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. <laughs> again, I, again, like my barometer from these things is just like Scott Lang Ant Man has the perfect origin and motivation. His sick daughter. Why didn't they included his daughter in the movie? Why didn't they make her sick? Why wasn't he stealing to save her and everything like that? Like, why would they change something that fundamental? But then I'm like, little kids saw that movie and thought Ant Man was cool enough to dress us for Halloween. That's all I need. <laughs> it's like, that's, yeah, that's, oh, yeah. I shouldn't. I shouldn't complain about anything else because little no kids complaint. left that movie thinking Ant Man was cool. I'm like, hell yeah. So if, yeah, that was if one people of the movies. Thought, if, yeah, if people like Doctor Strange now, cool. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because that was one movie where I thought, Ant-Man, really? Amongst all these other movies? I thought, there's no way they're going to make this work. And I thought it was great and Mm -hmm. hilarious. I I could watch that movie over and over. Love it. Yeah. Of, of course, one of the guys on the is just shirtless. The, this guy, just Jim. Just that's all we need is he's walking around the the drill site and everything without his shirt. And of course, they go back to the the thing and they're lovers and they strip down and everything. It's very cool. Um, I don't remember. Do they? Yeah, they do confirm that. I think Jim is the father of the baby. I think so. I mean, I don't know if they ever say it's Jim, but I mean, obviously you get that impression. So it's yeah. it's like unspoken, but you know, that's what it is. But that's really wild, man. I mean, it was 1990 and mm-hmm. it was a pretty racy little scene there, but I like yeah. that because let's be honest, typically in comic books, especially in the 1990s, usually it was the exploitive end on the woman and she's running around half naked with everything hanging out and acting like, you know. You know, she has two brain cells, and this time it's the other way around. So I like that juxtaposition quite a bit, to be honest with you. It's refreshing. (laughs) Right. She's the one in the power. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. A doctor. She's running that entire site. You know, somebody does something 
what is that one guy slip or something like that and she's like i'll fire your ass she's like yeah. <laughs> she's she's the boss so like right. i like that that's nice you don't yeah. like i said you didn't see that back then very much at all mm-hmm. <laughs> the last couple of pages i mean this is what you're gonna do i mean it, it's dr strange so he's gonna go up against some sort of formless entity villain that's that doesn't mm-hmm. look humanoid it's it's just a series of shapes and things and this can sometimes be hard to read, hard to read, and hard to follow. And with Gene Colan's art, which is always sort of, you know, fluid and smoky, a little bit like that. Um, yeah, I, I think he has done pages like this better. But again, this is mm-hmm. like as we've said, 1990. This is like you know after the prime of his his artistic output. He he was still very good, um, but I. You know the the climax of this with Strange fighting the this Azrael demon monster thing. Um, you just get a lot of pages with just just a lot of like pink colors and Strange kind of dancing around without any real shape or form to the background. And I've seen Colin do that better than he does here. Um, it's not bad. It's not terrible, but it's just it didn't do as much for me. Yeah, when he originally sees the pink and all that stuff, when you know Azrael calls him organism, <laughs> it, it's just a little generic. You know, it's hard to get excited about a villain right. when the villain's like more ethereal, where it's not actually something tangible to see him fight. So that makes it a little tough too. I mean, that's that's not easy to do. But yeah, it's just it's not Gene's best work. Certainly right. not his worst, but not his best by a long shot. Right, right. If it's just like an angry crystal an angry rock with like pink fire around it yeah okay. shumagorath it's not you know <laughs> yeah no yeah it's not it's not super scary you know to be honest about that for sure right right i mean it could have just been a big collection of eyeballs just to freak out herman at least Ooh. That would have been something. <laughs> oh that would be even better yeah that would be that would have been a step up for sure i could use those images that torment him for weeks <laughs> <laughs> um uh, so then, yeah, so Rena sacrifices herself, which is nice. She gets, like, the noble send-off, because by their logic, there's no other way of trapping this thing and making sure it can't leave. Um, you know, it's kind of her... Basically, as soon as they broke in, like, the, the... I guess sort of like the original sin of this company that was going to exploit the Earth by burying their radioactive waste, she had to be the sacrifice for that. By by being in charge of this project, she was the one who ultimately had to pay the price, pay the pay the price of the the company's sins by dying and it just took her you know a week to get to that point but she does it to save the life of her daughter and i love like by the end of it strange disguises himself as a normal practicing doctor and he's making sure that all these people you know it would have been so easy to just fly away and let them wake up but he's like no he's like these people have been through some kind of trauma i gotta make sure they're okay i gotta make sure there's no lingering you know source of evil or, or you know madness that's gonna complicate things further on i'm taking care of i'm doing the due diligence and also the fact that at the the very last panel strange has a baby in his arms and it's like yeah he's a doctor he would have delivered babies before that's cool yeah for sure i mean some good social commentary here by uh, roy thomas and i don't yep. think he was too heavy-handed with it um but he did a good job with it and yeah that's uh i like those last two panels i always struggle with you know looking at this one to think, oh, what are my favorite parts of it? But I actually do like that because, like, how often have you ever seen Doctor Strange holding a baby? You know, just something like that. Like, you see him flying around and fighting these mystic, magical, demonic, this and that. But just something like that is, like, it's different. I can't think of any other time I've seen him doing that. So there he is holding the baby and a tear coming down his cheek, too, it looks like. So (laughs) I like that, yeah. Uh, in general, some like favorite pages, favorite panels, things like that that stuck out at you. 
Well, like I said, just the baby there. I like those two panels at the end. And then my favorite page is definitely page two where, like you mentioned, you know, he's in the hallway of uh, the sanctum and it's kind of wobbly and wavy looking. And then the phone rings and he spins around and runs to the phone. I really like that page quite a bit. That's that's that, definitely my favorite page. That's funny. I had page one as my favorite with page two as the runner up. <laughs> so that was um, yep. Which I'm not sure if that's a dubious honor of saying you know, the best the best art in the in the book is like the first two pages and after that. But um, um, but yeah, I mean those are those are kind of like the closest you get to sort of the the atmospheric, cool Doctor Strange in his natural element type of pages. The sort of everything else kind of is more. It's really more function of telling telling the story, and a lot of that is backup and exposition and everything. And then again, the climax is a lot of strange flying around, fighting pink fire with pink fire. And um, but yeah, I think those first two pages are really. And then yeah, the the end with the baby is cool too. So yeah, I think we're, we're I think we're on the same page here. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I do like that little panel where. Doctor Strange makes that demon appear to scare the crap out of the cops. Yeah. <laughs> That's a neat little panel <laughs> to them. They, they start shooting at the demon. Yeah. But uh, other than that, yeah, it's like you said, it's a lot of it's just, you know, kind of mediocre, I would say. But yeah, those are some good points for sure. Um, for our listeners, uh, do you have any recommended readings for Doctor Strange stories? And these, do, you, you are not bound to, to mention a Gene Colan story, but kind of anything, any artist or creative team, uh, some favorite Doctor Strange stories that you would recommend? Yeah, definitely seek out, you know, uh, Herman and I are about to start off with uh, issue number one of that 1974 series when you still had Engelhart and Brunner. And then after that, Brunner leaves and Gene Colan comes back on the book. That's some good stuff. I mean, you have Gene Colan for maybe 10 issues. And then in there you get this, you know, the, the, they were a bit in flux with creative, even writing and artwork in the 20s, you know, issue number 20, 25, 30 in there, where it's all sort. You get some Jim Starlin, Tom Sutton, some very, you know, early days for those guys. And it's very experimental and wild and weird. Definitely look that stuff up for sure. That's very i don't think there's any i think they only have i think there's actually a uh epic coming out next year maybe that covers that yeah it does i i believe it comes out in january of 2021 yeah um yeah definitely grab that because that is some wild stuff like it's it's that's this is that's a very wild crazy period for dr strange but in a good way if you like trippy and <laughs> artwork like that yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to that definitely because I've got the the volume three epic which covers the the first part of that run the first couple of issues that have like the silver dagger and that whole storyline and oh yeah that's and all crazy the, the, even the the end of the colon run before that and everything in between um, but yeah I'm really looking forward to that next one which has that you know whatever ten or twelve issues by Colin and Inglehart and then yeah I I, did, I saw Tom Sutton's name in the credits too and I was like ooh that'll be interesting to see him um, so very cool very cool yeah those are some good recommendations. Um, Billy, thank you very much for being on this episode of Showcase Gene Colon. Where else can our listeners find you if they want to hear more from you? Definitely with you know my partner in crime, Herman, on Into the Weird. Um, you know We go through every other episode. We typically do Doctor Strange, and then the ones in between, we do all the other crazy Bronze Age characters like Man-Thing and Morbius and you know Damon Hellstrom, Son of Satan, and it's anything crazy, weird, wacky from the Bronze Age we go over, and it's just we have a blast with it because you know that was a very cool, fun, experimental age for you know comics, and oh, yeah. you, know, you got a lot. Yeah, you got so many of those creators that were just starting out then, so they were, 
you know, able to kind of buck the system a little and do what they wanted because they had an editor-in-chief and an editor like Roy Thomas who was very hands-off. And if mm-hmm. you could make something sell and stayed within the code, he let you do what you wanted to do. So you got a really, really fun time for comics there. So yeah, definitely check me out there. Me and Herman, are, we have a blast over there. <laughs> Your episodes on like the weirdest villains, the weirdest Marvel villains from that oh, Bronze era, those were a treat to listen to because I was just like, I was like, oh, I remember that guy. Or I was, oh, what, who the <laughs> what the heck is that? I've never heard of that. So those were a treat. Oh, okay. I like those, yeah. Yeah, episode 11 is when we did our first one, and I think 15 was the one where we went over the uh, the feedback. We did a whole episode on just, you know, the feedback of yep. everybody else's uh, favorites, too. And, yeah, we had a blast with those because it's crazy. Some of these people, like, characters were insane. It, they, some of them make no sense at all, but they're fun to talk about. So, yeah, yeah we had a good time. All right. Well, uh, thank you again for joining me on the show. Uh, listeners, we are going to take a short promo break right now, but then I will be back with your feedback from the last episode. Don't go away. Need a podcast talking about weird stuff? Well, then we've got just the thing for you. Into the Weird, a podcast chronicling the madness and magnificence of the mighty Marvel Bronze Age of comics, featuring the voice talents of Mr. Billy Delicious. Hola. Mr. Herman Hellstrom Lowe. Hey there. And straight from the long box of darkness, his infernal majesty Dormammu. How are you And many more. But wait a minute. You might be thinking, aren't all comics infused with a grain of weirdness? I mean, Reed Richards can stretch every single part of his body, right? And why did Ultron design the vision with working genitalia? Well, you would be correct, but Into the Weird isn't just any regular comic book show, folks. We focus on the really bizarre. Here are a few examples. A sword and sorcery barbarian grown spontaneously from a jar of peanut butter. A duck running for president of the United States. Benjamin Franklin playing hide the sausage with Doctor Strange's girlfriend, Clea. A giant-sized man-thing lamenting the death of a clown. A serial killer obsessed with killing only fools, dressed as cavalier with laser guns after witnessing a priest fornicating. And so much more. So if you like the wonderful weirdness of the Bronze Age from 1970 to 1985, and characters such as Ghost Rider, Morbius, The Defenders, Man-Thing, Son of Satan, Skull the Slayer, Kill Raven, Howard the Duck, and the weird granddaddy of them all, Dr. Stephen Strange, then this is the show for you. ITW's on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and TuneIn. Hit subscribe and join us for a comic-filled jaunt into the weird. All right, last episode, Herman Lowe and I discussed the short story For the Birds from Erie Magazine. That episode received comments on the Fire and Water website from Chris Franklin, my co-host on Batman Nightcast, as well as the co-host of Supermates, which becomes the House of Frankenstein this month. Chris said... Ooh, this sounds like a good one. I could see this story in one of Amicus's anthology films from around this time as well. Peter Cushing could have played the rich old man. Imagine that, Chris thinking about Peter Cushing. Uh, He says, I have to agree, that page showing the murder is fantastic. It breaks the traditional panel layout mold, but is somewhat understated than most of the experimental panels from folks like Neil Adams and Stranko were doing back at the same time. Great discussion. 
Well, thank you very much, Chris. And now I have to ponder the question. If Peter Cushing played the part of Old Man Ivers, would he only play him up until the character's death, or would Cushing then play the murderer, Stanhope, after he puts on the makeup to disguise himself as Ivers? How convincing would the director want to be that Stanhope could fool people into thinking he is Ivers? Good enough that they would have the same actor play both parts? Hmm... Uh, Siskoid from many, many shows here on the network said, What most surprises me about the art is that it has so few pools of black ink. It's so open and bright. And that's weird. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I guess the point is that even on a nice sunny day in the park, you know, scenes of horror can strike uh, kind of unexpectedly, but... Uh, And finally, Captain Entropy said, Horror anthologies are not often my cup of tea, but as you attested, Colin and Goodwin did good work here. Besides, Ryan's justified gushing over Colin is easy to listen to, and Herman's enthusiasm is downright infectious. I know, it's a bad year for that term. Uh, Captain Entropy goes on, I will admit to being a little crestfallen that I did not get to hear my pulpy prose read aloud by one of the two voice actors that made the Fire and Water production of Midnight and Three great over on Nightcast. I understand, though, following O'Neill with Entropy would be like following Shakespeare with a Police Academy sequel. You know, <laughs> yeah, hey, you know what? Gutenberg could have done a great Hamlet. Um... One must have standards. Writing like a bargain basement National Hammock clone was fun anyway. Oh, Captain. All right, you twisted my arm. This is what Captain Entropy wrote in response to the Batman story that I covered with Dave Weeder, specifically referring to the Remington Steel typewriter part of our discussion. I got a great deal on one of those in the 80s. I thought I was in the chips, but really I'd hit the skids. The thing would only let you write moody thrillers on it, detective and spy stories mostly. I bought all kinds of trouble when I aimed it at my 1040A. The IRS got the impression I was hiding something, and I hate to make a bad impression. Once I'd convinced the taxman he couldn't get any more blood from this stone, I pointed that word piano at the ivory-covered walls of academia. I got a D-minus on my term paper, because my professor said she had no idea what was going on until the big reveal on the last page. No surprise there, though. Dames always understood me about as well as I understood them. I tried to sell my term paper as a script in Tinseltown, but they told me to hit the bricks. Actually, what they said was, nobody films in black and white anymore, tough guy. So I bought a word processor off a guy who was fed up with La La Land and riding the rails out of town. I punched out a teen coming-of-age comedy, the kind of tale where the men were boys and the women were trying to figure out why the boys were so weird. Sold it to a director who thought it was the next John Hughes for enough greenbacks to leave town in style. It was the stuff that dreams were made of. Ah, fantastic story, Captain. Thank you for guilting me into reading that. Uh, I hope the listeners appreciated it. That is going to be all for this episode of Showcase Gene Colon. I hope you enjoyed this one, and I want to thank Billy once again for being my guest. Right now, I have no idea when the next episode like this will come out, nor do I know what exactly I will be covering, because, well, the next two months are going to be kind of busy because of holidays, and we've got to take care of some Patreon-sponsored episodes so I might not get back to Gene Colon until 2021, but whatever I do between now and then should still be a lot of fun. So 
Until then. People are strange. Thanks again for tuning into this episode of FW Presents. If you enjoyed our discussion, please support the show on social media by liking or favoriting the posts on Facebook and Twitter. You can leave a comment on the episode at fireandwaterpodcast.com, and you can always go to Apple Podcasts and leave a nice five-star review for FW Presents or any other show on the Fire & Water Network. If you really like us, consider sponsoring the Fire & Water Network on Patreon. For more information, head on over to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. As always, thanks for listening. People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone. Women seem wicked when you're unwanted. Streets are uneven when you're down. When you're strange, no one remembers your name. When you're strange, when you're strange, when you're strange.